This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored welcome everyone to another episode of literary treks your dedicated trek fm books and comics show i'm just one of your hosts dan gunther and with me as he is every week is the wonderful the effervescent amazing terrific finally has star trek posters behind him bruce gibson Keep it Bruce, going. how are you today? Keep it going. I like all these <laughs> words. Yes, yes. I ran out of stuff. I just want to compliment him on his long, luxurious hair and his luxurious mustache that Ooh. he has. Like that is some, this is now the essence of sexy. I Bruce grew Gibson's. it on a bet from a woman that I have a relationship with. No, 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 no. No. Anybody who wants to know what the heck Brandon is talking about needs to listen to the feature when we get to it. Or just accept the fact that Bruce is sexy. There you go. Okay, that's you a no. You'll have to put that in your Twitter bio, bio now, that you are the essence of sexy. Are you kidding? It's the already there. <laughs> Excellent. Well, that other voice you heard, of course, is our guest this week, Brandon Shamatala. Brandon, how are you doing? Um, I'm uh, a little bit tired. You know, I've been I've been doing a whole bunch of editing. I've been up for basically like six weeks straight and you know i've got this crazy thing that i can do where i just can stay up that long and it doesn't affect me too badly wow. well i definitely envy you envy you that ability i uh, kind of wish i had that myself <laughs> <laughs> awesome well we're here of course as we are every week talking about star trek books and comics and there's actually quite a bit of news in the star trek book world this week first up the Scribe Awards are for excellence in media that has to do with tie-ins to television, movies, gaming, comic books, and franchises like that. They include original works set in established universes and all adaptations of stories that have appeared in other formats and across all genres. And we have some nominees this week that we would like to share with you of some Star Trek authors, some names that any Star Trek readers out there should be familiar with. So, uh... Bruce, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about some of the Star Trek authors who are nominated for Scribe Awards this year. So, yes, we have Christy Golden, and we know her to be a wonderful Star Trek author. She hasn't been writing Star Trek lately, but she she has written some Star Trek books, especially uh, people might remember some of her Voyager novels. And Dayton Ward, he has been nominated. So Christy has been nominated for Best adaption of general and speculative fiction and also uh also the best speculative original and dayton has also fall fallen into that category best speculative 
originals. So he and Christie are both going for that one. And Dayton also is under Best General Original Fiction for a 24 novel. So let's hear it for Christie and Dayton. I hope Christie wins the one award, Dayton wins the other award, and then between the two of them that they're both nominated for, they have to fight that out between themselves. No, Dayton's got to win that one because that's a Star Trek book. That's that true. It's <laughs> Elusive Salvation. I'm glad yeah. you mentioned that. So, yes, we have to root for Dayton. Sorry, Christy. <laughs> Dayton's going to win that one because it's a Star Trek book. That said, them fighting it out with, you know, the amok time fight music in the background, you know, that would be pretty cool, too. <laughs> Excellent. Well, um, I do I do also want to say, it's the only other one of these that I've read, uh, Dayton Ward's novel, 24, Trial by Fire. Uh, I used to love 24 when it was on the air. I haven't really watched the, the new version they've brought out, but... Uh, Trial by Fire I did pick up and I really enjoyed it so he definitely deserves to be nominated for that one yeah and the other books that Christy did were uh, Assassin's Creed so she has those books those those are what she's nominated for well we do also have uh, moving on from that a cover this week that we're going to judge we have a new cover for the next Enterprise Rise of the Federation novel by Christopher L. Bennett this one's Patterns of Interference, and that's continuing the story post-Enterprise and right after the Federation has been founded. And this one, I'm really curious as to your guys' thoughts on this cover, because it, to me, is a bit of a departure from what we've been seeing in Star Trek novel covers lately. What do you guys think of this one? Isn't it like a James Bond cover, in a sense? Because you got Trip on the cover, and he's holding up a big phaser rifle of some kind, and he's, you know, well, because that's what Section 31 and all that, you know, sneaking around, secret agents and all that. He's very red. Like, yeah, I, it's, I'm assuming it's lighting that's on him that's red, and it's not that he has just turned red, <laughs> unless he's <laughs> very embarrassed about something. Uh, but He's been eating lots of beets. <laughs> there you go. Or he's undercover with, like, those, uh, I don't know, red painted aliens from deep space nine in that one episode. I don't know. Something like that. <laughs> I don't know, but it, it's, there's something behind him, like some facility and maybe a ship that's docked. Yeah. It looks yeah. like a ship. Mm -hmm. That's about to so launch. I, I don't know. It looks pretty cool. It's different than your typical star Trek cover. Yeah. That chip behind him. I'm not sure what to make of it. It almost, and I don't think like from the back cover blurb or anything like this, it doesn't say anything to do with Romulans. And I don't think they really do anything between the Romulan war and the original series, but it, I don't know. It kind of looks Romulan to me. It's like a big bird without swept wings. I don't know, but yeah, something's going on and a big, I'm, I'm assuming Ali Rees because he does the, uh, the nebulas. Uh, it looks like that's what's going on behind him there. Uh, yeah. Go gorgeous nebula. Anyway. Um, interesting cover. <laughs> I've been enjoying the last few covers that have the ships because I'm such a big fan of the ships. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, this one's just yeah. I don't know. I I don't know that it gives me my. I would give this a stamp of approval. What do you think? I think I would give it a stamp of approval, but maybe not quite the stamp of uber excitement. I don't know. Yeah, it's like a stamp where you miss the page at first, and you're like, "Oops, got it." Yeah, to get that stamp back on there, it almost misses the mark, but it's good enough to to give it a stamp. Yeah. Well, all I can say is maybe we should give it a stamp of approval because it, you know, it says Star Trek Enterprise and Christopher L. Bennett. Yeah, so. I mean, that part of the cover definitely gets my stamp of approval. <laughs> <laughs> 
But uh, no, I mean, it's, it's obvious that uh, there's a lot going on and I'm sure this image will make a lot more sense when we read it. But yeah, definitely we've got Section 31 Agent Trip Tucker and, and that kind of, those kind of shenanigans going on. So could be interesting. Yes, because he wants to take them down. Although we know he won't succeed yet. So interesting. Anyway. Uh, so moving on, we do have a couple comics this week, too, that we're going to be talking about. First up is the Star Trek Green Lantern crossover Stranger Worlds number six. Now, this is the final comic in the six part series, wrapping up this story with the Green Lantern Corps crossing over into the Kelvin timeline Star Trek universe. So, Bruce, what did you think of this one? Well, you know, this is going to be interesting because I don't think you're quite expecting what I'm going to say. And hmm. it's not that I don't like it, but I don't like it as much as the other ones that I read. And I think if I look at the last issue and this one, it's the big finale. So there's a lot of action going on and a lot of fighting going on. And to me, there's not as much story. And I really liked how things set up earlier in the six-issue series. I like the first half probably a little better than the second half. But I feel like this is the direction the story needs to go into. It needs to come to this point because it is a comic book. It does involve Green Lantern. But it feels more and more to this point like a superhero comic than a Star Wars comic. So it almost felt more Star Trek-y in the beginning, and now it feels more superhero Green Lantern uh, towards the end. But it's it's probably the right direction and right ending for this type of comic, to see the Green Lanterns fighting, to see Kirk with the Green Lantern ring, which I think is pretty cool, to see Kirk as a Green Lantern. It's, it's I mean, I wouldn't want to see that in any Star Trek series, all of a sudden Kirk becomes a Green Lantern, but it's great in this comic miniseries. Um, so I, it's not my favorite of the issues, but it's, it's a good way to end things. What do you think guys? I think that's a pretty fair summary of it. And I think you hit the nail on the head pretty much, pretty much right on there. It was very, very comic booky at the end. And I'm like, Oh, okay, this is interesting. And you know, the, the final page and, you know, what happens with Kirk on that final page, I don't want to spoil it too much, is like, oh, okay, <laughs> that's interesting. So it'll be interesting to see if they follow us up with another one or not, like with a third, a third uh, sixology or whatever you want to call mm -hmm. it. Yeah, I think my thoughts are, are very much in line with you guys. I, I had that same feeling reading this, like, oh yeah, okay, they've got to have the big action finale and it's a bunch of people fighting and that sort of thing. It kind of ticked all the boxes that they have to tick to to wrap up the series. Uh, some parts that I, I, I found were pretty funny. You know, the the one ring is powered by love. So, you know, they yeah. power up the Enterprise and using the power of love, they blow up a bunch of Klingon ships. So, oh man, <laughs> that's, that's a very loving thing to do, I guess. Yeah. And I mean, so Bruce, um, like you said, very much more Green Lantern through this than Star Trek. We do get kind of a typical Star Trek moment towards the end of the the story. And I, again, like you, Brandon, I don't want to spoil it. So, but there is, you know, shades of Star Trek coming through in, in how things are dealt with kind of thing. So, well, one uh, thing, yeah, it's adequate. One thing I really liked about this is something was mentioned in here that I've been waiting to see addressed in some fiction, Star Trek fiction somewhere. And that is that Kirk has augment blood in him. 
And mm-hmm. even though Khan's blood was put into Kirk's body and into darkness, that doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be any augmented effects to Kirk or he's going to have uh, superpowers. But, I, you know, who knows? It could. I've just been waiting for that to be addressed. And Khan does acknowledge to Kirk, you have augment blood in you now. Embrace that power. And I really would like to see something played off of that. Maybe it's a side effect to it, or maybe maybe he does gain some strength or some ability temporarily. Or I, I don't know. I would just like to see something taken from that scene and, and just, you know, do something with Kirk that's a little different because this is a different universe. Now that he's got Khan's blood in him, does that affect him in any way physically? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And, and something I noticed too, for sure, that was kind of interesting. I mean, they touch on it briefly in Into Darkness. I think McCoy asks him if uh, he has any megalomaniacal tendencies and he's like, I don't think so. But uh, yeah, to see some sort of lasting effects from that would be interesting. Now, Brandon, there was a reference in this story yeah, that I thought you might take a special interest in it, referencing one of your all-time oh, yeah. favorite episodes, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, one of these Green Lantern guy, uh, they're talking with Kirk, and he, Kirk says, where'd he go home? We call it the antimatter universe. It exists alongside all others, including this one. Be grateful you haven't discovered it yet. What of Lazarus? <laughs> what of Lazarus? Lazarus is in the Green Lantern universe. It's, yep, that's true. That's true. Uh, I have no further comment on that. <laughs> oh, I do, because there's another thing in here. Uh, they mention uh, the Green Lanterns mention a part of the universe where there's a red sun. Not in that universe that you're talking about, within their existing universe, a red sun. And I was like, are they referring to the red sun that was near Krypton, where Superman's from? Oh, see, now I feel like a total idiot because, (laughs) oh man, and especially I just watched an episode of Supergirl from way back from season one where they talked about the red sun of Krypton like 50 times. And I did not put that together until you said it just now. Yeah. And if it is, if it is referring to Superman, then Superman is part of this Star Trek universe also. It's all connected. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. I just want, I just love that there's some, you know, alternative factor love out there and they can like make references to it yeah so you could have lazarus and superman in a comic book together we just established that epic it's something anyway no wait even better we could have lazarus and batman yeah that's true Hmm. yep that's that's a thing that could happen therefore we can have lazarus and aliens yep ripley oh well and there was a scooby-doo cartoon with batman once so you can have scooby-doo in here that's just taking it too far. <laughs> Zoinks! I'm sorry. <laughs> he pulls off his fake mask and it's another Lazarus <laughs> underneath. Oh, you kids! <laughs> well, for uh, for any Star Trek fans out there who are totally lost at this point, uh, see the season one Star Trek episode, "The Alternative Factor." That is one of Brandon's absolute favorite episodes, and number two, I will just leave it at that. And you can judge his judgment as you will. I'm just kidding, Brandon. You're cool. <laughs> I am. I'm fully comfortable with the fact that everybody else is wrong. Fair enough. We'll, we'll allow you to believe that. <laughs> Moving on. We've got uh, another comic. Now, this one is uh, one I w- that I was really looking forward to. So on Free Comic Book Day, of course, there was Mirror Broken Number Zero, kind of a little prequel to this story. But this week we get to talk about 
Mirror Broken number one, the first actual issue of this series. And this one follows the exploits of Mirror Universe Captain Jean-Luc Picard of the USS Stargazer as he plots his way through, or sorry, ISS Stargazer. Wow, I better turn in my Star Trek nerd card there. Um, as he plots his way through trying to gain power and position in the Terran, in the rem remnants of the Terran Empire in the Mirror Universe. So what did you guys think of this one? Well, I'd like to see, did Brandon... Did you read the free comic book issue? So before did, we get yes. in this one, yep. what did you think of that real quick? Uh, it was too short. <laughs> it was about half as long as it should have been. Um, I thought it was neat to see, you know, like that it was told from the point of view of Barkley, you know, instead of, you know, one of the main characters. And But uh, it, it, it was good and it served as a little bit of a prequel, just to whet your appetite of what was coming. It's not necessary to read it, you know, so if you missed out on it, you're right, not missing yeah. a lot. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's it's just it a is. fun little... So then after you've read that, you read this. So what do you think of this one? Um, I got to say that I love the art in these. Mm. That's the thing that really captures me right at the beginning. And I'm going to look up whoever the guy that did this. But this is the same guy that did... I think this is the guy that did the City yes, Ninja Forever. Yes, that is correct. J.K. Oh, man, I love this guy's work. Like, this is just amazing, the details that are put in here. Was this... Somebody was talking on a podcast the other day, and it said... Some guy took 30 hours to do one page of the comic. That's this, that guy. this guy. That's what we were talking about on the uh, him doing these issues. We were talking about that when we were reviewing the free comic book day issue. That's outstanding. That's amazing. Like, these are just beautiful pages in here, you know. So it reminds me, the way that they're standing and stuff, though, reminds me a lot of... Uh, the, the New Visions comics, hmm. which is like the complete opposite type of art, but just the way that they're kind of like standing in pose and stuff, it just, I don't know why it gives me that that feeling as well, but I don't know, I thought it was cool. You got some Cardassians in here and, you know, what they're trying to find, again, I don't want to spoil it, what they're looking for at the end of the, uh, at the comic is pretty neat, so yeah, I think it's, I think it's great. I love that it's on the Stargazer instead of the Enterprise, because you know, the Stargaze is one of my favorite types of ships, right? The Constellation class. Yeah, you're naming all the things that I love about it. I love the art, and I was going to say that too about the Stargazer, because you would expect to see them on an Enterprise, but no, it's the Stargazer. Mm -hmm. And so there's certain points, like when they're on the bridge, and I think, gosh, you know, that bridge looks like it would be the Enterprise A, but of course that was the set they used to do the Stargazer scenes in the next generation. So, and I also noticed when they're on the lift, he's holding the handle like on the original Enterprise. Picard's holding on that little handle that you, you know, to kind of twist and the light glows on it. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I always think of uh, Trials and Tribulations when uh, O'Brien and Bashir go into the turbo lift and they don't know to take the handle to get the turbo lift to go yeah little stuff like that like it, it just it kind of triggers memories and stuff like as soon as you see him he grab that handle i hear like the <laughs> you know and and yeah like little touches like that just really serve to immerse me in this world and uh brandon like you said the the this watercolor painted style um, I don't, I don't know what he uses exactly, but it's, it looks like that to me. Yeah. Magic. It's just gorgeous. It's absolutely beautiful. And it's funny when you look at it, like there's not a lot of color, like it's not, not as colorful as you would think it would be, but it, it's just, it's gorgeous. This kind of muted painted look and, uh, 
yeah, it's very, very beautiful. And the story's really interesting. I'm really interested to see where they go with this. And uh, the characters, I thought, were really interesting takes on the counterparts that we know from the, the main Prime universe, I guess. You know, there's like glimmers of their characters that we know there, but twisted by this, you know, mirror universe conceit. Yeah, I mean, they're they're very much the characters that we know in the next generation. They're just in a different environment. They've been raised in a different era. And so, you know, Picard isn't this overly mean, nasty person. He's Picard, just more stern and maybe just a little more evil and a little more aggressive, but he's still, you know, Picard and Data is really still Data. And even Geordi, I felt was still Geordi. So the characters mm-hmm. don't s- stray too far from what we know of them, but they are in the mirror universe. So, you know, they're going to have a little more edge to them. Yeah. Geordi's got those epic sunglasses. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Those are pretty cool. I like those. Those are pretty cool. And I like the last page. Picard is looking in a Viewmaster, And I keep wondering... What what is he? What little Viewmaster slides? Are, you guys know what Viewmaster is, right? The, oh yeah. Oh, doesn't yeah. it look like he's looking at a view yeah, through yeah. Viewmaster on the last page? No, that looks like the one from Star Trek Five. Oh yeah. Right when Bones is looking up at the yeah. at the uh, Mount Capitan there at Kirk climbing. I'm gonna the thing. start talking to myself. I kind of expected him to say, "Well, there are two Banthas down there, but I don't see." Wait. Yep. No, I'm I just thought kidding. of that too. Wrong universe. <laughs> I thought that too. Yeah. <laughs> Crossing the streams. Uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're getting Star Wars on our Star Trek. That's not cool. <laughs> Just kidding. I have no comment. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, I'm excited to get down to the uh, the feature today because we're talking about uh, one of the more well-known original Star Trek novels, one that's been around for a long time. So what do you say we flip the page and take a look at the entropy effect? Well, as I mentioned, we're going to be talking this week about Star Trek number two. This was the first original Star Trek. Well, I shouldn't say that. It was not the first original Star Trek novel. It's the first original Star Trek novel from Pocket Books. Nope. Timescape. True. Yeah. Okay. So there's a little bit of, of wibbly wobbly crossing over there. But generally in, in the lists of Star Trek novels, this is this is the first one after the novelization of the motion picture under the the Pocket Books Now banner, and that is The Entropy Effect by Vonda N. McIntyre, who's probably most well-known to Star Trek readers for her novelizations of Star Trek 2, 3, and I think I think she did Star Trek 4 as well. Um, 4 and 5. Oh, and 5, okay. But this was, I think in a lot of Star Trek readers' minds, uh, a really excellent... Nope, Jam Dillard did five. Sorry, I had to correct myself. Jam Dillard ah, did five. Ah, okay, I thought so. So yeah, we so well known for the novelizations of Star Trek's two through four, the the Star Trek trilogy, if you will. Um, but the entropy effect definitely has a place in the history of Star Trek novels. A lot of people have read this book over the years. So first of all, I kind of want to start there with your guys' stories. When did you first read The Entropy Effect, and was this your first time reading it, or have you read it in years gone by? So I read it in years gone by. I read this, I'm thinking this might be the third Star Trek novel I had ever read. So the first one I read was uh, the was Enterprise, their first adventure. Is that what it was called? 
I think it was called, yeah, Enterprise's First Adventure. I read that one, and that was in 1991. And then immediately after that, I read The Lost Years. So I read the first mission of the five-year mission and the last mission of the five-year mission. And that's when I started getting to Star Trek novels. I'm like, you know what? That was pretty good. So I went back to Walden Books in the mall, and I saw all these numbered Star Trek books on the shelf. And, well, I already seen the motion picture, so I didn't want to read the book at that time. So I picked up number two, which was The Entropy Effect. And I have it right here in my hands from 1991, which we established uh, on the, what did we say, the other side of the page, <laughs> right? We established <laughs> yeah. that this is the 12th printed edition of this book. And so I read it back then, but I haven't read it until, I haven't reread it until now. So the only thing I remembered prior to rereading it was Sulu had a mustache and long hair, which that ties into what we were talking about at the beginning of the show. Sexy Bruce. (laughs) This was the first time I've read this book. I picked it up. I must have bought this book 20 some years ago back when I started collecting books because I started collecting right when D Space Nine came out. And I've never read it. I just never got around to it. And so this was a first read for me. So that's hmm. last week. Very cool. <laughs> um, yeah, I picked this book up. I Most of the used Star Trek books I have, like, have a stamp in them or a tag on them that shows where I... But I, I, I have no idea where I bought this book. I did at some point along the line. I read it at some point, probably between six to ten years ago. Uh, so fairly recently. Uh, and then again, the second time for the podcast here. So there are a lot of things that I'd remembered about this book. I, I read it before I was doing my book reviews online. So I didn't have anything that I could look back to, to see what my thoughts were. Uh, I just kind of remembered bits and pieces here and there. And I kind of had that experience that while I was reading it every so often, I'd be like, oh, that's where that's from. Oh, okay. That's from this book, you know? Uh, so yeah, a really interesting experience. And Interestingly enough, the exact same edition uh, that Bruce has here, uh, the 12th printing of the same blue-covered edition. So that's kind of neat. Yeah, mine's the white-covered one. It's a third printing. But it's it's been soiled because it's stamped by Collector's Edge from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, yeah. which is where I bought it from. <laughs> yeah, I didn't get mine there. Mine was at the Walden Books in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You weren't in Saskatoon? No, I wasn't, unfortunately. I've never been. <laughs> but it's on my list. Well, don't. Don't worry, neither have I. (laughs) (laughs) So first of all, one thing that's kind of interesting about this book is the setting. So I I feel like at this point in Star Trek novels, everything was a little bit fluid. I think nowadays everyone likes to know exactly when a book was set. You know, was it during the five-year mission? Was it in the post-motion picture era? Was it after Star Trek V? You know, where, where and when does the book take place? And this one I feel like muddies things a little bit. Because it's in that era right after the motion picture had been released, this, uh, the edition that I have, of course, has the motion picture uniforms on the front with the movie era Enterprise. But certain things in the book, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's a little bit vague as to where and when it takes place in the, in the Star Trek timeline. So what, what do you guys think? Where, where does this story take place? Well, based on the captain's log, like even here, Stardate 5001.1, like that's that's during the end of the mission, right? Like the end of the five-year mission, I'm pretty sure. So, but yeah, my copy too has 
the motion picture uniforms on them. And I think they probably just d did that. It doesn't really matter when it takes place, I don't think. Um, but I think they just did that because Star Trek, the motion picture, was the last thing people would have seen of Star Trek, right? Yeah. So this is actually pretty interesting because we all have the the same cover art on ours, which includes Sulu with the mustache and the long hair. And which is epic. Which is by epic. The way. I love it. Not as epic as Bruce's though. No, no, can never top this. But it's got the like you said, the uniforms from the motion picture and the the refitted Enterprise. And you can't judge and a buff Kirk. Wow, well, yeah, but not a, <laughs> they took some liberty on that one. So it it's not you can't judge a book by its cover, basically, right? So here's what I'm what I think. This was published first in 1981. I think this does take place in the original five year mission before the uh, motion picture, because Brandon, like you said, the star date. Second of all, Sulu is a lieutenant in here. So is Yahora, and they even talk about Sulu becoming a lieutenant commander. That possibility, which they were lieutenant commanders in the motion picture. So obviously, this takes place before that. The thing is, though, back at that time, there was also a lot of speculation that before the motion picture came out, that when even afterwards, that there was maybe a second five-year mission. So there was the first five-year mission, then there was a second one, and then the motion picture. So back then, the timeline wasn't as clear. So the author's intent could have been that this took place in the second mission before the motion picture, but they already had those uniforms at that time. Maybe. I don't know. I think that the cover artist took liberty and maybe the publisher said, hey, because the new movie came out, give them those uniforms and that ship, even though it doesn't take place at that time. There's been other books that they've published where the cover uniforms don't match what's on the inside. Like that's a common occurrence with well, uh, with some of the older Star Trek books. Even uh, co covers where, you know, different items on the same cover don't match. I mean, you get the refit Enterprise with Kirk in his gold velour uniform right right <laughs> you know every once in a like i the the book covers definitely are all over the place i would direct your attention ladies and gentlemen of the jury to page 162 and i think it's it's the oh wow your, i feel your, like i'm in church right now <laughs> open your, your bible your ranks uh your rank evidence is is very good too and that and that's excellent and also uh on page 162 of of the editions that we have anyway Dr. McCoy refers to Chapel as nurse, and Chapel was an MD right. in the motion picture, so definitely before the motion picture. But yeah, so that is true. Guilty, guilty, <laughs> guilty. This book is guilty. guilty. Wrong cover for it. But they corrected the cover because the newer editions has Spock in the original series uniform, and he's screaming, and his hands are up. Ah! or whatever and that mm -hmm. actually fits probably the book better than this cover does right yeah. and that's that's taken from the scene where spock eats too much cheese <laughs> exactly yeah um and and listeners to the podcast you'll, <laughs> you'll notice the the artwork uh for this episode is that book cover so you'll see what we mean there um maybe not about the cheese i i don't know <laughs> But so anyway, there we go. We've we've established the setting. So that's excellent. Well, let's let's get to a little bit of what's in this book. Now, something that I found uh, an interesting part of the story is Sulu's role in the book and not just the fact that he has long hair and this just rocking mustache. 
Yeah, but why but does he, he have does... the long hair and mustache? Ah, yes. Why does he have the long hair and mustache? Because well, we can... he's in love. He is. Yep, he's in love. So, yeah, Sulu does play a, a large role in this book. And Lieutenant Commander Mandala Flynn, who is the new security officer taking over from a previous security officer that I guess was incompetent or just not a good security officer. I don't know. They don't really, is that from anything? Was there a security officer that was not up to par before this or? I think they all died because they're all red shirts. Oh, maybe it was, it was like a meta commentary on how many red shirts Kirk lost (laughs) in the five year mission. We can never keep a security officer around. It wasn't until the next generation that we kept security officers longer after Yar. I mean, we had Worf because he was wearing gold. Hmm. There we go. Well, so this this new security officer, uh, she and Sulu have this relationship. But in the course of this story, Sulu transfers off the ship to pursue a path that will allow him... Uh, greater experience to look good on his Starfleet resume, basically. Uh, So the relationship between these two characters, what did we think of that? What did you think of the dynamic between the two of them? Well, I liked it because we don't necessarily see a Sulu love story. And I'm not going to say this book is a love story at all, but it was just great to see Sulu have a nice relationship with another crew member And then it developed into something a little more that you could feel in the beginning of the book that there was some tension there. Uh, There was some interest between the two as uh, they were training together and sparring together. And so as I was reading, I was like, I was hoping they would get together and, and they eventually did. But in typical book and story fashion, it can't be that easy. So, of course, Sulu's like, well, I'm thinking about transferring off the ship because you know, I don't know if I'm going to be able to move forward in my career very far if I just stay on the Enterprise as the helms officer. I need to move on to other things. That's what will get people noticed. In other words, I have to beef up my resume. And that's a nice tie to Sulu also because it, he's been on the ship for so long. I mean, I know it's only been a five-year mission, but as we continue on through the movies, Sulu is always there. And it's like, why is Sulu not doing other things? Well, this book addresses the fact that he did try to do that. And I guess when we get later in the book, you know, we obviously he comes back. But I liked seeing him uh, pursue his career and having a nice relationship with a, with a woman and having romance and growing his hair out and having the mustache. It was, it was a little a nice Sulu story in this book. Yeah, I, I agree. It's it flushes out a character that we don't really get a lot of backstory on until we get to the novels, you know, because we didn't. You don't get a lot of backstory on Sulu in the television show, and at this point, they'd only had the motion picture, right? And he's kind of minor in that one as well. That's true. I mean, you know, up to this point, and in canon Star Trek, even much later, Sulu didn't even have a first name, and that's something that Bruce, you pointed out in the notes here is. Uh, kind of groundbreaking in this novel is this novel is the first time that he is given the first name of Hikaru. Where did uh, you find that out? Well, you know, as a true Star Trek fan, I've heard this lore <laughs> for long periods of time. Well, no, I and I've read about this years ago that Hikaru, Hikaru was used in some fan fiction 
but it wasn't until this novel came about that they actually let the author use a first name and and Vonda needed to use a first name because if he's having a relationship with a woman, it'd be really weird that in this intimate relationship, she keeps referring to him by last name. So, so she needed to use a first name. And so they allowed, uh, allowed her to use the Hikaru, Hikaru, the Hikaru Sulu name in this book. And then after that, a few novels would touch on it. Um, but it really didn't become official canon until they did The Undiscovered Country. And I think it was Peter David was on the set that one day and he mentioned to Nick Meyer, well, Sulu's been, you know, he's been given a first name in a few of the novels. And he actually referred to this novel as the first to have it. And that's how it got in the movie. Because Uhura's first name, Nyota, was first given to her in a book as well. I think it was I think it was Uhura's song. But her name was given to her in the novels, and then that became canon. Mm-hmm. And that didn't become canon until much, much later than Sulu. Was that it was oh nine when it officially became? That was the first time it was officially used in in canon on screen Star Trek. Yeah. yeah. Yes, and and it that's that did take a long time for that. But her first name was also used in a uh, Nintendo Star Trek game. I remember seeing that, but also in some older novels. Every once in a while, and I, I can't think off the top of my head which novels they would be in, but Penda was used for Yohora. She had different... Oh, I think I heard that somewhere. Yeah, so yeah. Penda was in some novels, and um, Nyota was using others. So I think more so Nyota than Penda. Hmm. I like to think Penda is her middle name. I like that. That's, yeah, headcanon, as they say. There you go. <laughs> Lovely headcanon. Excellent. Well, so... We touched on it briefly. Sulu kind of goes off in, on this other assignment. Uh, he requests a transfer to pad out his resume to get more experience in various aspects of Starfleet. And where he transfers to is actually really interesting as well. So we get another character named Hunter, and she's a captain in Starfleet. Uh, some history with Kirk, as you know, any most female characters that come on have had. And she commands a ship, and I'm I'm thinking the pronunciation the pronunciation is the Arifin. I I'm not sure. That's the closest I could get. Her ship is the Arifin, and it uh it she's the head of a fighter squadron operating on the Federation Klingon border, which I thought was really interesting. You know, this kind of aspect of Starfleet that we never really saw in the television show or the movies that you know there's this kind of more dedicated military aspect of Starfleet that's out operating and getting into regular skirmishes and that sort of thing. And Sulu transfers to her ship. So first of all, what did we think of this kind of different aspect of Starfleet? Uh, This whole idea of these fighter ships. And I mean, you know, it seems very different from what we know of the rest of Starfleet. I mean, Captain Hunter has her ship painted with like a different color scheme and it's kind of it seems a lot less formal aboard the ship and more like a fighter squadron would be like in the air force or something like that what did we think of that i thought it was interesting because it gives you another aspect of starfleet like you know we have the corp the corps of engineers right and these other aspects of starfleet that we don't really touch on and we don't really see 
in canon on screen, but it's like, well, they might have something different like this. I mean, I don't know that they would have like this fighter squadron because, again, Starfleet isn't really a military organization, but it's something interesting for the author to try and add something new to the franchise and make something a little bit different. You uh, you mentioned that Sulu transferred over to her ship, but part of the reason he wanted to go to their ship, though, was because he admired her so much and she was such a role model for him, which I thought was interesting as well. Yeah, this kind of idea of like mavericks within Starfleet that that build a reputation and, and Hunter is one of them and, and presumably Kirk we see is another uh, for different reasons. But yeah, I, I thought that was an interesting aspect of her character for sure. Yeah, it's like Top Gun. They can make another novel where Sulu's, you know, part of Top Gun and this fighter squadron. It, I mean, I love this idea. Just like Brandon said, you know, there's other areas of Starfleet we might not know about. It kind of expands the concept of it. Fighter squadron within Starfleet, maybe, maybe not. I'll accept it. I like the idea. I don't want to think that there's like this huge operation of of uh, fighters out there that maybe there's just, you know, a squadron here and a squadron there. And it's very loose, like you said, Dan, where she can just, oh, I'm going to paint my ship and we just decide to paint it red or whatever color. And I can put stars and I can put stripes and rainbows and all kinds of stuff, whatever you want to do with it. And it just seems very loose and on the edge of the frontier and they're kind of doing their own thing. What was cool about this scene also is I had forgotten or maybe I didn't realize at the time that Hunter was in here. Now, one thing I think is interesting is that we give Sulu a first name, but Captain Hunter doesn't get a first name. Why? Mm -hmm. I have no idea. The author has the right to give her own character a first name. But what I liked about seeing Hunter in this novel is that she is in the Star Trek three novelization that is mentioned. And it's either that one or in, in Star Trek two, one of those two, but it's mentioned before Sulu is getting ready to possibly become captain of the Excelsior that he had briefly served as Hunter's first officer. I think on oh, the Exeter. Cool. I think it was on the Exeter, if I remember correctly. I was going to go back and reread it, and I forgot to do that. But I noticed that she's mentioned in the novel as a captain that uh, Sulu had served under. So maybe they were referring to this novel, but I, I I took it as meaning like somewhere between the motion picture and Star Trek II that Sulu served as like a first officer or some prominent position under her command. And it is, of course, the same author as we had mentioned earlier. So, you know, it's very possible she was referring to something to do with... I mean, I read those novels a long time ago, so uh, I, I don't remember that because I think I read these in different orders. I think I read those years ago and this one more recently. So I, would, I didn't make that connection. That's really interesting. I, I'd love to go back and check that out. Yeah, I think it's Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, when they return back to the star base and he's wondering if he's going to get the Excelsior or not and, or if his career you know, is on the right path. And I think he talks. I don't know if she appears in there, but I know she's referred to as someone he served with. Going back to Hunter herself then, so like you say, we, she doesn't have a first name, you know, I feel like uh, McIntyre's kind of creating this mystique around her, this kind of um, mystery around this character and, and giving her legendary status. What did you guys think of her relationship with Kirk? And, you know, in some ways, it's kind of yet another woman that could have been the love of Kirk's life and all this stuff. 
but it feels a little different in this story. What did you guys think of, of that kind of dynamic there? It actually made me think of, I wish I could remember which one it was because I, I watched them all so quickly, but it actually made me think of something that was portrayed on screen in one of the Star Trek Continues uh, productions. I think it was the one that recently came out because um, I, I don't know any of the characters. I've seen them once, but uh, Kirk, Kirk had a, a youth friendship with a woman and, you know, they had these pictures of him with her by some airplanes and stuff. And it re- kind of reminded me of this relationship that he had with her uh, in this episode. And they talked about it as youth. It wasn't meant to be a romantic relationship and stuff. And I kind of got that from this, too, that it wasn't meant to be a romantic relationship. You know, the the relationship they had was almost family is the relationship I got. And Kirk didn't want to commit to this family commitment. But to me, that wasn't a love marriage commitment i don't know that's how i read it anyway yeah i think you're right i don't think it was a uh, a love situation uh maybe they were dating maybe there was some romance or at some point but not to the point that they're in love but they have this weird thing that is mentioned in the book where there's partnerships and hunter is in a partnership with like nine other people and it's not marriage but it's this unit where everybody's kind of tied together in a kind of marriage situation. I don't know. I don't even know how to explain it. They didn't go in great detail about it, but um, you know, Kirk didn't know if he wanted to get wanted to be involved in that. It almost kind of reminds me of the Andorians, you know, instead of four though, mm. there's like nine or 10 of the humans that are kind of <laughs> bonded together. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. It's like a, it's nine or ten adults that are bonded together in some kind of arrangement. A family unit of some yeah. kind, yeah. And, or the Denobulans. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what I was thinking. That was kind of my touchstone for and, that. Was And I'm not positive, and again, I'm going back to some old stuff, but I think maybe this was also hinted at in the novelization for the motion picture, which was written by Gene Ronberry. I'm not positive. If it's not this, it's something similar to this, maybe. But I just yeah, thought Yeah, I know weird. there was some some stuff with with kind of family units and and marriage and possibly polyamory kind of like that in in the motion picture novelization as well so yeah i'm not sure but yeah it was it was definitely interesting and i kind of almost liked that they just glossed over it quickly and didn't launch into a deep explanation you know it's it's kind of this uh it's 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 world building right it's it's creating this world and making it feel like it's just that's just normal like why would you launch into a discussion of it that's just what these people have chosen to do it's kind of like the old uh ethos for the star trek the original series where roddenberry said i don't want kirk to take out his phaser and explain it for 10 minutes you know it's a gun he takes it out and he uses it that's that this is the universe we're in get used to it kind of thing it was, it was it was kind of taking an extension of that but like a socio societal thing which you know i don't really understand but okay i guess that's something they do now. yeah because <laughs> if you know you, not everything has to be explained i mean we usually do want to know mm-hmm. everything but i like what you're saying if if i was going to write a novel that takes place in today's modern times i'm not going to say oh, I turned on my computer, which is a device that does this, 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 and that. I don't have to describe anything. It's like, I like the idea of looking at other worlds where things are mentioned or seen or whatever, and people, you know, I wonder what that is. And we don't really know, but that's what makes it feel different. And that was the thing I always liked about star dates. 
I, the thing I liked about Star Trek is I know it's sometime in the future. I just don't know exactly when. And that's why I liked about star dates because it wasn't really clear. But as Star Trek continued on with the next generation stuff, now everything's been pinned down to an Earth year. And I get that because there's so much being written in Star Trek. You have to kind of try to keep it all together. But in the early days, I liked the idea of I don't know when this was because or when this will take place because it's in the future and in the future, they don't use Earth calendar dates. They use star dates. And I have no idea what that means with time. I just know it's sometime out there and they get it and I don't because I'm years in the past. Mm-hmm. But internally, it makes perfect sense to me. Yes. Yeah. Right. right. Now, one of the things about Captain Hunter is, like, I don't know, unless I missed something, a description of her, I pictured she was a human and like an Aboriginal or a First Nations, you know, because was, she had this yeah. feather in her hair. Right, but I don't know, did they say that she was an alien or did they say she was a human or did they not say? I don't think they said she was human necessarily, but I, I got that same impression as well. I think they, they describe that she has slightly darker skin. I, if I remember correctly, I could I be think, wrong about that, but I think she's the feather human. in the hair definitely made me think First Nations. Yeah, I think she's human, but not originally from Earth. I think mm. I remember something mentioned in there. That she was, she grew up on another planet or something, or or she was a boomer. It was something like that. I know they didn't. Yeah, she was a boomer. I think actually, now that you mention that, I think that was that was put in there too. Yeah. Going through uh, our outline here, actually, this was really interesting. I noticed Bruce, you put something in here about when. Okay, so basically, the antagonist of this novel, the Doctor Modro, and we haven't even really gotten into the plot of this novel, but no, we haven't. <laughs> Early on, unexpectedly, he shows up on the bridge and he shoots Kirk uh, with this pistol that has a special bullet called a spider web device in it. And it's it's this horribly nasty weapon that basically spreads out through your nervous system uh, after you're shot with it. And Kirk's Kirk gets shot and Spock is, you know, touching his mind, trying to ease his pain and can feel him slipping away. Sounds and, like Cybok. <laughs> yeah, sort of like that. Um, <laughs> but <Sorry. laughs> uh, something you brought up that that was really interesting to me, and, and I didn't realize, but I, I think I kind of made the same connection in my head without really thinking about it, because it, it felt really familiar. But in Star Trek Into Darkness, when Captain Pike is killed, and Spock you know, mind melds with him and feels him dying. It was a very similar scene. And you bring up a point that, of course, we know that the writers of the Kelvin timeline films have cited various books and we know they have read at least a few of the novels and gotten ideas from them. And uh, we were wondering if maybe this was tied together specifically with this novel because it and it's not out of the realm of possibility this is a very well-known novel it's cited by a lot of star trek fans as a really great example of star trek fiction is it possible that they had this scene in mind when writing star trek into darkness yeah i think so uh and maybe not there's just so so many little things that are coincidence you know i'm i'm tying this novel to a lot of other things for some reason but into darkness when Pike is dying and Spock is there, Spike, Spike. Yes, I'm now calling Spock Spike. That works for me. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm down. So in the darkness, Spock is there when Pike is dying 
Does he have long flowing hair and a nice mustache, this Spike? No, he doesn't. I'm sorry to say that. Oh, okay. Sorry to say that. <laughs> so Spike feels... No. Now, now you got me all messed up. <laughs> so Spock, Spock feels Pike slip away and die, and he carries that in him. He actually experiences death. Can you imagine experiencing death... The feeling of death, actually experiencing what that's like, but actually being alive. And that's what Spock goes through. And that's hinted at in this novel, not in great detail, but Kirk dies and Spock is there. And Spock actually, quote, feels him die. And so that took me to the end of darkness scene. And then later we see, you know, Pike, not Pike, but McCoy agonizing over, you know, Kirk's death. And is, there's got to be something that we can do. And he's in sick, sick bay. And I thought this reminds me of McCoy being in sick bay in the darkness and thinking, what do we do? What do we do? And he's, of course, he sees the Tribble and blah, blah, blah. We all know what goes from there. So, yeah, I think I think they may have gotten some ideas from this novel. But, yeah, no, it, it's it's definitely a possibility. And and. As soon as I read that in the outline here, I was like, oh, yeah, because, you know, like you mentioned, they have cited other novels they've taken ideas from before, you know, Best Destiny being one, Prime Directive, I think, was another one. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's entirely possible. The entropy effect, of course, you know, is well known in Star Trek circles. So... Getting back to the plot of this story. Now, sorry, um, I want to interrupt one thing there that you said earlier, Dan. You had, mm -hmm. And it's an interesting point that I want to point out. And it's one of the things that I really love about the book is you're like early on in the book, this guy bursts on the bridge and kills Kirk. And it's not early on in the book. That's the thing. Like this book is a really slow burn. That's and true. And I really yeah. like the pacing of it. It's a nice book. The it's it's I wouldn't call it slow. But it's it's different than any Star Trek book I've ever read. Like it's ninety pages before Kirk dies, and that's like the main catalyst for the whole story, which is not quite half the book, but it's more than a third for sure. I mm -hmm. think that's really interesting, and it's it's a really interesting creative choice that Von N. McIntyre has done for this book. And I don't know, I love the pacing of this book a ton. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely something that I did note. And, you know, it's one of those things that kind of pained me to say it. But uh, and, and I think this is just an effect of, of my own poor time management skills and that sort of thing. But that pacing and the slow burn, I, I actually had a really hard time getting into this book, even though I've read it before. And I know that it gets going. But like over the course of the last week, trying to sit down and find time to read it there were a lot of times that I'm just like, okay, okay, okay. 10 pages. Okay. I got to go do something else. Cause I just, it wasn't getting into the story. And I, again, that's not a criticism of the book and I definitely appreciate what you're saying, but uh, it, it, it made me not annoyed with the book, but more annoyed with myself <laughs> that I couldn't seem to get into it for the first third of it or so. Uh, I was enjoying it, but again, I just couldn't get into that page turning. I have to, I have to read more. Whereas, I have to say the last half of this book, I blew through that in a day because that is, I'm just turning the page wondering what's going to happen next. Kind yeah, of I didn't have that issue of not, I got into it right away. I'm, I'm like Brandon. I mean, even though the story doesn't seem to really take off till, till later in the book, it was just, 
the Sulu relationship that he was having with this woman and the everyday life on the Enterprise and introducing Captain Hunter and the squadron and the singularity that's going on out there. There's just there's just things going on like this is what life would feel like on a starship. It kind of reminds me again, I'm relating to something else. It reminds me of Star Trek Beyond, like that first, you know, 15 Mm. minutes of just this is this is a this is what Starfleet officers do. This is what life is like on a starship. These are the relationships they have. This would, this is longer than 15 minutes in this book, but I kind of like that setup. It just, it seemed to make things a little more richer. So by the time we got to this really off the wall story that we're going to get into here in a minute, it just, it, 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 if we didn't have this beginning, the book would not have felt grounded. It would have just felt like it's just bouncing all over the place. Yeah, no, I, I fully agree with you there. And, and like I say, I I did enjoy the book and it's it's a failing on my own part that I was You're just not that. into romance. You're just not a romantic <laughs> kind of guy. Ah, oh, that's true. But <laughs> uh but yeah, referring like you said to this this plot that we're going to launch into here. So, the entropy effect is ultimately a time travel story. And the way it's constructed I thought was really, really interesting because we get these little hints, like you see effects of what's going to happen later in the story kind of playing out as, as you read it. So you follow this kind of linear path of, you know, what's going on with the crew and then you follow in the time jumps and you, it fills in the blanks for what you saw earlier or what other characters experienced earlier. What did you guys think of this, this kind of construction of the story? Because I, I, as soon as that started coming into play, like I was hooked, like page after page, just blasting through this in one night, the last half of it anyway. <laughs> that kind of part, I didn't really, it didn't really work for me. I do got to say something funny though. Before I really knew that time travel was a part of this book, when Scotty first comes across Spock in the transporter room, I actually thought for some reason that Spock was using the transporter <laughs> to re-energize himself because he'd been up for six weeks. So he was like, I don't know. <laughs> That's just what I thought he was doing in there. And then they get to the bridge and Spock's denying that he saw him. I'm like, okay, so time travel. That's right. I forgot that there's time travel in this book. But it was so funny when I read that scene. I'm like, oh, Spock's using the transporter so he can stay awake longer somehow. I wonder what, the, you know, anyways, I don't know. That's just <laughs> what I was thinking. So... <laughs> It can get a bit confusing because uh, there's so much time travel and, and jumping around that's that's going on with this doctor and with Spock. But I liked Spock having a relationship with this doctor who's later in life apparently goes a little insane um, that this this doctor was a mentor to Spock. And so Spock was actually very defensive of him and believed in him, even though no one else believed in this guy that that invented this time travel capacity with the transporters but i thought it was interesting about the idea that if you send someone back in time if you mess with time in any way there's like this ripple effect you can't just go back and fix it you can't just oh i sent somebody back 
oh, that was a mistake. It could change the timeline. Let me go back and bring the person back and make sure it never really happened and everything would fix itself. It doesn't quite work that way. If anything, the more you try to fix it, the bigger the ripples become and it gets more and more complicated and you do more and more damage to the timeline. So that was showing up in here. They could have played that even further if they wanted to, but then the novel would have been twice as long. So there's a lot of this that remind me of the Flash TV series because Barry Allen is always mm. trying to fix the timeline and he just keeps making a mess of everything and poor iris i don't know what she sees in him <laughs> yeah no I, I i really enjoyed that aspect of it and and like you said like as it was getting towards the end it, it kind of had that effect of how are they going to wrap everything up because you know there's there's only a few pages left like you know how are we going to going to fix any, everything and of course spock eventually does fix everything and like you say, I love that dynamic between him and Dr. Mordreau, this kind of um, kinship they have because he's such a genius and Spock admires him and everyone else thinks he's this horrible criminal kind of thing. And one other thing that I wanted to bring up that I, I had totally forgotten about reading this book was the third Dr. Mordreau. So we've got like the current one who doesn't know what's going on. He just sent some friends back in time and now he's being accused of all this stuff and another him shot Jim and all this stuff. And then you've got the insane one from a little bit in the future who's just nuts. And then that third one from even further in the future who's like, yeah, I was a little nuts for a while there, but I'm trying to fix it now. <laughs> you know? I'm all I, better now. <laughs> yeah, I'm all better now. And and yeah, I'm trying to fix this. I thought that was, that was a really cool kind of... it. it kind of almost reminded me of all good things like the three time periods, the three Picards working to, to fix this temporal anomaly thing. But uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was an interesting way to tell that story and a kind of really cool uh, fifth act, you know, to bring in that future Dr. Mordreau. I guess the only thing I want to say about time travel at this point is that I'm just looking at some of my notes it's what I was saying earlier that anytime you're going through time, it starts a, a whole new chain of events. I'm reading here that the probability version would never have existed. So, so things won't fade. It's just, there was just a lot of things about time and, and time travel and the effects on timelines and, and creating alternate universes or alternate timelines or whatever that is never consistent in Star Trek. And so the fact that things keep changing within this timeline, but not necessarily creating new timelines, but then it's suggested that it could branch off and make timelines takes me back to the department of temporal investigation books where there's explanation for all these different kind of theories of time and time travel. So this kind of thing plays on two aspects of it. Yeah. There's some branching off, but there's also some converging of timelines. And it made me think of uh, the escape that we read a little while ago too, right? With the uh, you know, ripples in time and stuff like that. The Voyager book. Yeah, I, I had uh, I had kind of flashbacks to that one as well for sure. I also liked the fact that you know, we kind of touched on it earlier, but not everything can be perfectly fixed, and the end kind of result was basically like band aids and patches on certain things, and it'll probably hold together and it'll be fine. I love that that was kind of the solution that like, you know, it's not perfect, but you know, a little bit of spit and bailing wire and we've, we've got this, like it'll, it'll, it'll do for now kind of thing. Kind of an interesting take on temporal mechanics, I guess. 
But so moving on into our final thoughts and ratings for the entropy effect, uh, Brandon, what are your kind of as as the new reader, as someone who's not read this before, what is what what's your take on the entropy effect? I think that this is probably one of the best Star Trek books that I've read. I really enjoyed it. I really like the pacing of it. Um you know, it was more the style of the writing. The, you know, with the time travel, I thought it was interesting because he, he, you know, well, I don't want to give any spoils for the ending because I really think you should read the book. But I liked how it didn't resolve itself the way that I thought it was going to resolve itself. So I'll just leave it at that. But um, I think that this is going to be. Uh, if I had to give this a rating, I guess I would give this a rating of one sexy mustache. Ooh, that is an incredibly high rating. <laughs> awesome bruce what are, what are your thoughts my thoughts are that i predicted correctly in my head that brandon would use mustaches in his rating <laughs> <laughs> but i will say that i so with you there brandon i love the writing the pacing i love the characters i love the story it has it it's definitely a science fiction book it's very sci-fi in that last half. Um, so it, it's not one of these Star Trek books that's commentating on society or culture or anything like that. It's really about these characters, the relationships, and then a time travel aspect and the singularity and the effects of time and dimensions or whatever. And so, I mean, all that's really cool and fascinating to me. So I would say that I would give this book nine good partners that I like out of 10 in my little group. Nice. Excellent. Yeah, I'm kind of on the same page as you guys. This is this has always been a favorite book from when I first read it. And, you know, timing issues and, and getting into it and finding time to read it aside, I really love the character work in this book. And like you say, the science stuff and the, and the time travel and the nifty things are, are pretty cool. But for me, it's, it's that character stuff. It's, it's getting into Sulu's life and, and Kirk's relationship with Hunter and, and to me, Spock and McCoy's love for Kirk after he's dead, like that whole aspect of their characters and what they go through was really, really touching. And there, the, subtle humor that's in this book like there's no like really huge off the wall hilarious moments but i love vonda mcintyre's sense of humor and I've, I've had this joke in my head for ages and this was one of those moments when i was reading the book and i was like oh that's where it's from where dr modreau talks about you know he'd be re he'd be viewed as a pseudoscientist if he didn't put his theories into practice and he says, I might as well have joined an off-world branch of the Flat Earth Society. I have loved that joke forever. And as soon as I read that, I was like, oh, that's where this is from. I knew I'd read it in a Star Trek novel somewhere. But like I've, I've marked it in my book and I've put a permanent bookmark in there because I, I love that line. <laughs> you go back to that book. Everyone's really like, why do I have this book? Oh, that's why oh, I have that yeah. bookmark there. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. So, yeah, no, I, I really rate this book highly, I think. Um, nine out of 10 is a really, really great score. And it's one that, uh, that I definitely have to agree with. And I think I'd have to give it probably nine out of 10 mustaches, but the brick red one that James Kirk grows instead of the black one that Sulu has. So 
<laughs> I, can't I don't know grow why there's nine out of That's ten why I'm of them, so but... fascinated by the sexy mustache because I can't grow. I thought one. you had a mustache at one. point. <laughs> I'm right there with you. I had a Van Dyke, but I mean, if to grow, if I just just have a mustache, I mean, I don't know. Like the cops would be following me if I just had a mustache by itself. <laughs> following you with jealousy? No. <laughs> <laughs> following me with tasers and handcuffs. <laughs> Well, I love the fact that we all agree that that novel is like really great Star Trek. I, I It's interesting because a lot of the older novels are hit and miss. I think nowadays most of the novels that they publish are really good. I, I, I can't think of anyone that's come out in recent years that's been bad. But back back in the day when their Star Trek novels started coming out, some were not good, and some just were awful. But this one was definitely one of those that was up there. Yeah, between this and the motion picture novelization, which is is one of the few novelizations that I just really, really, really love, um, Pocket Books got off to a great start with its Star Trek book line, for sure. And, I mean, you know, time travel paradoxes. I mean, Vonda McIntyre has an amazing imagination, and that really comes through in this book. But sexy mustaches are not all that we've been talking about on the Trek FM network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, to the journey! So his his whittling skills are so advanced that he can whittle wood into leather. Into vegan leather, yes. He is now Rumpelstiltskin. (laughs) He is the Rumpelstiltskin of the Marquis. Warp 5. You think they start to like like each other and then it's more like a father-daughter kind of relationship and then he basically becomes uh, 50 first dates and she falls in love with him. <laughs> That's <So>. great. <laughs> that is true. The 602 Club. Yeah, I mean, Christopher Lee, That that's inspired to have him in that role. It, it really is such a good bit of casting to have him there. Primitive Culture. A look at history and culture through Star Trek. The key thing with Jutrelli is all of these elements are exactly the same thing as the events in real life. You know, the Metron Cascade is the bomb. Rhinax is Nagasaki or Hiroshima. You know, the poisoning is analogous to radiation poisoning and all these different things. And the the parallels are enormously overt with Jutrell straight away. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. We'd really appreciate it. But if you know... You're not an Apple user. That's fine. We've got you covered as well. You can find all our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and in most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks can include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons' website, Patron Zone. 
It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, and we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference. It's our listeners group on Facebook. So just go to Facebook and type in Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact, trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks. That will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. And while you're sending us those emails and, and comments on the Babel Conference, if you could please upload pictures of your awesome mustaches into the feed, that would be great as well. <laughs> awesome. Hashtag Sulu stash. There you go. There you go. Awesome. Well, you can also, special for Literary Treks, find our Goodreads group where we have bookshelves with all our previously covered books, as well as the currently reading section so you know what's coming up for future shows. Plus, there are great conversations happening about the books and comics. Just go to goodreads.com, search for Literary Treks, and click Join Group, and we'll let you right in. We'd also like to thank Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, and of course, the wonderful Brandon Che Mutala for their support of the Trek FM network and for being associate producers for Literary Treks. You're welcome. So thanks, Brandon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, Brandon, when you're not using the transporter to recharge yourself because you've stayed up for two weeks straight, where can we find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter, at Brandon Metella. Every once in a while, I poke my head up in the Babel Conference. Right now, on the Trek FM Twitter page, I've been doing the daily poll, as well as the hashtag Star Trek Ultimate Tournament, where I've been pitting uh, episodes of the original series against each other to try to determine a fan-favorite episode. It's been a lot of fun, so make sure you check that out on Twitter. Uh, here on the network, I have a show called Melodic Treks, which is all about the music of Star Trek. And I co-host Warp 5 with my friend Floyd, where we're talking all about Star Trek Enterprise. And even if you're not an Enterprise fan, you should check the show out because we've been having a lot of great interviews over there. It's been a lot of fun. And uh, I also have a podcast with my friend Chris and my friend Tom called Good Evening, an Alfred Hitchcock podcast. And you can find that over on the Fandom Podcast Network. And uh, we've got episode four coming out the same day that this is going to be released on Sunday. So uh, episode four is coming out very well today. So if you're not tired of me, you can go listen to some more of me. And uh, Bruce, where can people find you when you're not trying to jump ship from literary treks to get more experience in your podcasting and, uh, you know, go to other podcasts to become a lieutenant commander? <laughs> Yes, because I'll be doing a podcast uh, next week with Captain Hunter. It's going to be really exciting. You can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex, and you can find me jumping ship over to Star Wars and talking on the Star Wars report about the 40th anniversary of Star Wars. And uh, you can also find me, of course, in the Babel Conference. And Dan, when you're not flying through space with your green lantern ring on where can people find you <laughs> oh man if i were a better green lantern fan i'd know that chant they do uh 
I can't remember. Let's do it green. Is that the chant, isn't it? I think that's it. That must yeah, be it. Like it. Green forever. It's in Ireland, isn't it? Something like that. Well, you can send your hate mail for that to at uh, Kurtrats on Twitter. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can also find me on YouTube where I have a YouTube channel mostly talking about Star Trek. Surprise, surprise. That's at YouTube.com slash Productions. You can also find me on Facebook, Kicking Around the Babel Conference, and on Instagram at Kurtrats47. Well, thank you all so much for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.